Will you remain standing and let's read our scripture for this morning together. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers, and all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. This is God's word. You may be seated. Well, so I'm glad to see you today, and uh, we are resuming our series through the Acts of the Apostles that we titled Turning the World Upside Down. And uh, we, uh, as I mentioned uh, two weeks ago, we're in a little sub-series that I've just titled Devoted that's based on Acts 2, 42 to 47. We're lingering in this passage uh, for one more week following today. Um, and just kind of seeing what it has to say about what it means to be a New Testament church. By way of review, we began last week with those opening words, they devoted themselves. The word, the Greek word, therefore, devoted is proskartereo. Um, It suggests a steadfast, single-minded fidelity to a certain course of action. It means to be given over to something, to persist, to be constant and steadfast in spite of opposition or difficulty from without and in spite of the ever-present lethargy from within. What Luke's use of this verb tells us is that these disciples were disciplined devotees. Or as I said before, if you'd like to be a fancy person, you can call it a devotee. Um a little more sophisticated than devotee, but there you go. Um, they were disciplined devotees. They were not dabblers. They were not dabblers. They were all in. We also observed last time that much of what characterizes the activity of so many who claim the name of Christ today cannot at all be described as devotion, but in truth is better described as dabbling. For example, most have an extremely casual attitude and approach to their church attendance, to service within the church, to relationships with other believers. And ironically, a majority of these will nevertheless claim that their faith is very important in their life. Without rehashing all of that, we may simply say that it's no wonder then that the witness of the church in America is as weak as it perhaps has ever been. By contrast, it's clear that the devotion of this early church, their their intensity, their faithfulness, their persistence, their steadfastness, enabled and empowered by the Holy Spirit, as they had received the baptism of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost, was the key to the explosiveness of the gospel and the sudden expansion of of the mission of the church and the, the life of the church in the first century. And it, it's the key to all that the Holy Spirit wants to do in us today, and through us as well. They devoted themselves. They devoted themselves, first of all, to the apostles' teaching. And we explored that a little bit a couple of weeks ago. This is 
Um, Jesus had equipped, they had, he had appointed the apostles to be the chief interpreters, uh, communicators of who he is, what he accomplished on our behalf, what he wants the church to, to know and to obey. And it's to their teaching, their doctrine, that the true church, the remnant church, the faithful church, has adhered since that time. Then they devoted themselves to the fellowship. They devoted themselves to the breaking of bread. It's to these two priorities that we turn today. First, the experience of fellowship, and secondly, the symbol of that fellowship. And then fourth, they devoted themselves to the prayers. Uh, Notice that um, in front of all four of these is a definite article, the. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, to the prayers. So what does that tell us? It tells us that they devoted themselves not just to praying, but they devoted themselves to a disciplined schedule of frequent, fervent prayer, which is essential to the vitality of our spiritual lives individually, certainly, to the health of the church corporately, to the advancement of the gospel, whether it's local or global, and and we'll examine that next week. Two weeks ago, I made the comment that these priorities define the normal Christian life and the life of a normal church. I was asked in our life group meeting what I meant by that because these days it may not seem normal to find a believer who is devoted to these priorities or that matter to find a church that's in fact devoted to them, truly devoted to them. And painfully, that's too often true. Yet from the perspective of Scripture, these basic priorities are normative. They're normative. That is, they set the standard and the pattern for what one ought normally to expect in a Christian life and in a Christian church. Where where they are deficient, and there are deficiencies in every church, we need to face up to that fact, and corrective measures need to be taken. And so it's entirely appropriate for each of us to ask ourselves the question, am I devoted or am I a dabbler? Am I devoted or am I a dabbler? This morning we're exploring those second and third priorities, so let's begin with this one. They, they devoted themselves to the fellowship. Again, single-mindedly, faithfully, steadfastly, persistently, in spite of opposition or difficulty from without, and in spite of the dampening effect of lethargy from within. The Greek word translated fellowship is koinonia. It means literally to have everything in common. And so it denotes partnership, participation, communion, even companionship. When the New Testament writers use koinonia as an adjective, they describe a person or a group that is generous and willing to give of themselves. So there's an element of generosity to koinonia. We're going to see that this morning. This, by the way, is why we at LifePoint have embraced the word partnership where other churches use the more traditional word membership. There's absolutely nothing wrong with the word membership. It's a 
biblical word. Paul uses it a lot in his letter to the, to, uh, the Corinthians. But partnership says in a perhaps more focused way in our present world that we're all in. It speaks about mutual investment. It speaks about mutual risk and then mutual outcome, mutual benefit, mutual celebration. It means that we are equally and mutually invested. They devoted themselves to the fellowship. What does the mean in this case? To what were they devoting themselves? I think when we see that definite article right there, the, it it ought to tell us... um, that they did not devote themselves to some abstract concept, some social ideal. The text itself gives us several clues regarding the nature of this shared life of devotion to which they gave themselves. And I'd just like to just kind of milk the passage, as it were, and and, and to, to find clues about what this fellowship to which they devoted themselves was all about and what it might tell us about how we ought to function today. And the first thing that we encounter here is that devotion to the fellowship includes racial and ethnic diversity right out of the chute. Acts 1.15 tells us that prior to Pentecost, the church numbered about 120. Nearly all of them were from the region of Galilee in northern Israel. But on the day of Pentecost, 3,000 believed the message of the gospel Peter brought to them. And this was a diverse crowd of Jews living in Jerusalem from all around the Mediterranean world. Verses 9 to 11 of chapter 2 give us a definitive list. Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. Now some of those Some of those places you recognize because those names have persisted and still apply to the countries and the places being described. But some of them we don't recognize because most of them, many of them, uh, have have new names. But here's, here's how to picture this. If you can picture Italy, remember you learned in geography class about the boot that's sticking down into the Mediterranean? Italy and just follow across into Turkey, down the Mediterranean coast, and then west again over to Libya. And and on the way, you've passed through places like Egypt and Saudi Arabia. And so this is a diverse group of people. The first Christian church of Jerusalem was ethnically and racially diverse. They were linguistically diverse. They spoke different languages. They were raised in different cultures. They had different colors of skin. And each of them was added to the church. It's kind of kind of contradictory to what we grew up in 
on in Sunday school curriculum artwork, right? A bunch of white guys and girls in robes and turbans. But hear this. The first church, by God's design, was racially, ethnically, linguistically diverse. The only common denominators were their Jewish backgrounds and their newfound faith in Jesus Christ as Messiah, Savior, and Lord. One of our national mottos is E Pluribus Unum, from the many, one. You'll find it on our currency, among other places. America was once known as the great melting pot in which people of all nations and ethnicities could experience liberty and equality. Today, I would submit to you that we are as racially divided as nearly any time in our history. Some people actually find a way to earn their living by fomenting racial divisiveness in our country. Racism is prevalent again. You, you can't watch the evening news or, or the all-day 24-7 news uh, without hearing about racists and white supremacists over and over and over again. So think about it. I, I know of no other fellowship than the fellowship of the Christian church in which an, in which an astonishing diversity of humans can experience genuine oneness, sustained unity, And it's all because it's brought about by our common faith in Jesus Christ and the unifying power of the Holy Spirit. The Apostle Paul wrote to the Galatians, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. To the believers in Colossae, he wrote here, that is, in the church, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. And I would suggest that you could take any set of differences and insert them in those spaces. In Paul's vision of the throne room of heaven, He saw a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And then to racial and ethnic and and linguistic and any other kind of diversity you can name, add all of the other ways that we are different from one another. The church is not by any means a cookie-cutter group of people. There are different ages and stages of life, different marital status, varied, varied socioeconomic status, different levels of education, a diversity of careers and walks of life, vastly different personalities and temperaments, often quite different political persuasions. And some Christians aren't even Seahawks fans. I know, it's hard to believe. 
There are a lot of reasons that we Christians sometimes don't get along, aren't there? And perhaps that's why the why Paul wrote to the Ephesians saying, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling, worthy meaning equal to, equal to the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And the unity that the Spirit is trying to work in us then must be carefully protected, actively cultivated, attentively preserved. We have to get outside of ourselves and outside of our opinions and our biases and our prejudices and be devoted to preserving the unity that the Spirit is trying to work in us. I have talked to many pastors because that's one of the tribes to which I belong who are really, really hurting. Not just pastors, church leaders, lay leaders, others. Because during this pandemic, churches have been sifted. And the reason they've been been sifted is that Christians have allowed their scientific beliefs, their politics, their fear, to supersede their commitment to the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. We've made other things more important. Paul would like us to see the priority of the unity of the church, even in areas of disagreement. It's not about conformity. It's about unity. We don't all have to be the same. We do. We must commit to oneness. Theologically speaking, the foundational model in Scripture for unity and diversity is the mystery of the triune nature of the Godhead. One God, one, one God, eternally existing in three distinct persons. When we're baptized, we're baptized, aren't we, in or or literally into one name, singular the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Not three names, one. We're not baptized three times. We're we're baptized once into the one name of the one God who exists eternally in three persons. In John 17, it's recorded that God the Son prayed to God the Father and in four verses prayed three times that he would make us one. I do not ask for these only, at that point the apostolic band, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, 
all of us, that they may all be one. Just as, listen now, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. So the world may believe that you have sent me. The evidence that you, Father, have sent me is the oneness of the church. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me, there it is again, and loved them even as you loved me. What a mouthful that is. We could spend hours, days, years exploring the depths of that little passage. Do you guys remember this study from from 1 John or this passage from our study of 1 John? That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Our fellowship, the fellowship of the church, the oneness of the church is founded upon, made possible by our fellowship with God through personal faith in Jesus Christ. Minus that vertical fellowship with God, our horizontal fellowship with one another would not and could not and maybe should not exist. We experience the deepest, richest fellowship with one another when we are pursuing deep, rich fellowship with God. It's our tangible, observable fellowship with one another that speaks most loudly to the watching world of the authenticity of our claim to be his disciples. Frequently on the way out of here, I will say to you, church, love each other. Love each other. It's the mark of our discipleship. That comes directly from John 13, 34 to 35. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So that as the, as the world watches the church, the late Francis Schaeffer put it this way, as, the, as, as it seems that, that God has given to the world the right to judge the authenticity of our claim to be disciples of Jesus Christ by whether or not they see a visible, tangible love happening in places that are called church. In those community of, communities of believers. The psalmist speaks this blessing over the unity of God's people. Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. I suspect he might add sisters as well. It is like the precious oil on the head running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, 
running down on the collar of his robes. Picture that, the the anointing of oil, the anointing of the Holy Spirit just flowing over us. It's like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. Dry, brittle, barren most most of the year. And so the dew is precious. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. For a church to experience deep fellowship, deep love, unity, is so unusual that the psalmist observes that. He says, it's an unusual experience of blessing. Devotion to the fellowship also implies locality. Locality. You're going to have to bear with me on this one. Picture a a television commercial with me. Post-Pentecost. Two Jewish guys who were there on the day of Pentecost, who who received the baptism of the Holy Spirit, uh, who spoke in other tongues. The announcer says, Hey, Benjamin and Levi, now that you've been filled with the Holy Spirit, what are you going to do? And the two guys smiling in unison say, We're going to Disneyland. We're going to Disneyland. You think that something like that actually happened? Of course not. All who believed were together and had all things in common. They were together, and they were together with a particular group of people in a particular place. And the place itself had not changed. The faces hadn't changed. The humdrum of daily life hadn't changed. But because of their faith in Christ and the transforming work of the Holy Spirit, they themselves had changed and were changing. God wants to change us in the places he has put us. And it was in that place and and among the people who lived there that the transformation the Spirit was bringing about in their lives was to be worked out. When they devoted themselves to the fellowship, they didn't devote themselves to a vague notion or a mere ideal. They didn't just say, hey, I'm devoted to fellowship. I I I like that. I like hanging out with God's people. I like drinking coffee, eating donuts. I kind of like that whole gig. They weren't going from church to church as many do today in search of the place where they would receive the warmest welcome, the fuzziest affirmation, and the best cup of coffee. I ran across this quote from someone named Christopher Ashe this week. He said, the local church is made up of a community of people with whom, by and large, you would not want to go on vacation. And all God's people said, Amen. See, if you've spent enough time in a local church, you, you will have had moments when you've asked, is this really the best that the grace of God can do? Right? Are these really the people with whom God wants me to be in community? Well, here's the answer. Yes. Yes. And the dirty little secret is that they're asking the same questions about you. And it's so essential for us 
to grasp. The late Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote, the person who loves their dream of community, their dream of community, will destroy community. But the person who loves those around them will create community. The kind of community, the kind of fellowship, the kind of koinonia that the Holy Spirit wants to work in us and through us and among us is dependent on a choice to love. And love is devoted. It's devoted. I read a book when I was just a young pastor. I I think I was just out of graduate school, and I thought the title of this book seemed interesting. It was written by a guy named Richard John Niehaus, and the title was Freedom for Ministry. And I was getting into ministry, and I thought, man, Sounds cool. Sounds good. I like the title. Sounds enticing. I'm going to read it. The thing I remember most about that book is that he said, if you are going into ministry, if you're going to be about leadership in the church, then the first thing you're going to have to come to terms with is what he called the thus and so-ness of the church. And by that, he just meant the normalcy, the everyday, the the humanity, the sometimes the yuckiness of being in a church with all kinds of people, with all kinds of issues. It's just where we are. You know, you'll, you'll frequently hear the question, where do you go to church? And we know what they mean, but, but sometimes you'll, you'll hear it asked this way, where do you fellowship? And I would submit to you that that is the better question. Where, in what locality, in what specific local church, are you devoting yourself to the fellowship? See, if you're not devoted to the fellowship of a specific local church, you are missing out on a significant aspect of God's design for your life. Because that's where God does his work. I often hear people talking about discipleship as if it's some kind of program. And there are programs that support discipleship. I would put it that way. But discipleship has to do with life in the body of Christ. If you read 1 Corinthians and Paul's discussion of the gifts of the Spirit, it's it's all of those gifts, all of us, all of our giftedness, sharing them together in a devoted way so that we're investing our giftedness into the life of the church, into into the lives of each other. That's what discipleship is. Because all of those gifts are the expression of Christ as he takes up residence within us by his Holy Spirit. The writer of Hebrews said this, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. He could have written that this morning, couldn't he? And it would be as relevant today as it's ever been. If the author of Hebrews were writing those words today, he, he might write, let us not give up meeting together as most are in the habit of doing. As most are in the habit of doing. But encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Devotion to the fellowship involves material and financial generosity, we find in this passage. 
verse 45, and they were selling their possessions. Don't miss the radical nature of this. They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Talk about a benevolence fund. As any had need. Skip over to Acts chapter 4, which is a, a, a parallel passage. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. Underline that in your Bible. No one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. But they had everything in common. There's the word koinonia again. They had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them. Stop right there. There was not a needy person among them. How many churches do you know where that's true? There was not a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them, and brought the proceeds of what was sold, and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. I shared with you uh, some time back that there was a a time years ago when I was preaching in another church, and I was preaching on this passage, Acts 4, 32 to 35, and there was a guy out in the foyer who was ranting that the guy in the pulpit, whoever, whoever that Yahoo in the pulpit was, he was preaching communism. I love that memory, by the way. I I just think it's funny. But communism says what's yours is ours. We'll take it. What's yours is ours. It belongs to all of us. We'll take it. We'll seize it. Koinonia says what's mine is God's. I will share it. I'll share it doesn't belong to me. God gave it to me for my, to, to take care of, to use for his purposes. And so I'll share it. It's all from him. No seizure of property for the sake of redistribu- redistributing wealth is happening here. But sharing of money, sharing of property is taking place for the purpose of meeting needs from willing and generous spirit-transformed hearts. And when the Spirit takes control in our lives, even our attitudes towards our money and our stuff is transformed. By this, all um, where your treasure is, Jesus said, there will your heart be also. So we realize that everything we have comes from God. Everything belongs to him. We're just stewards of his money, his stuff. We're called to use it to serve others for the sake of the kingdom of God. Devotion to the fellowship also insists on personal availability. Verse 44, all who believed were together. You say, well, how'd you get availability out of that, Jim? Go to verses 46 to 47. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people so I wonder this morning how you might define availability. I, here's what I think it means. To be personally available means that we're ready, willing, and eager to lend an ear, to lend a hand, 
or even to offer the simple gift of presence, to be present with and for each other. Because clearly here in verses 46 and 47, there was a lifestyle that was developing that had that had others in mind. It was all about the community of believers. The, our contemporary lifestyles war against this gift of availability. Um, we all have things to do, and so many of them seemingly so important. And it may be and often is true that we are actually very busy with important things. I know that I am, and it seems like many of you are as well. But devotion to the fellowship means, I think, that there needs to be some reprioritization that goes on. That we need to begin to value availability to each other more highly so that we don't allow the world to just squeeze us into its mold as it always wants to do. I remember a friend who worked for a a major corporation that was a, a that contracted with the federal government years ago, and and uh, he had a wife, he had little children, and and uh, he asked for some time off to spend with his family. He had been with this company for many years, and here's here's how his boss, his supervisor, answered him. He said, "We didn't issue you a family. We didn't." issue you a family. In other words, your your primary loyalty should be to us and to whatever we issue you. He quit. He quit. And it, and it meant uh, a huge loss of income for him. So it may mean that we need to restructure our lives, restructure our schedules so that we can be available to those who genuinely need us. In another time, in another place, availability was was closely tied to locality. Um, If a person who lived in a place of true community wanted to chat with a friend, chances were good that that the friend would be instantly available because they lived within walking distance of each other or or a short ride away by by burro or camel or pony or buggy or wagon or what have you. But today, technological advances make possible conversations with one another, whether by voice or even face-to-face and even on opposite sides of the globe in real time. And I'm just, I guess, old enough to have that blow my mind all the time, that I, that I can have a, a conversation that's clear and crisp with someone that's on, entirely on the other side of the planet in real time. So one of those places of availability happens to be in church, and that's another very important reason, the frequency of church attendance. And that's what I think in part this is this is describing. That's so important. Devotion to the fellowship also includes hospitality. Hospitality. Acts 2.46 says, Breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. Breaking bread in their homes, they receive their food with glad and generous hearts. Romans twelve thirteen contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. First Peter four nine show hospitality to one another without grumbling. These are apostolic commands. They're not just you know tips or hacks for 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 great church living. These are commands. When I was a kid, it was. 
It's an unusual Sunday afternoon when we didn't have guests in our home for Sunday dinner or that we were guests in someone else's home. Very, very common for that to happen. My wife has a, a friend who is Catholic, and she would call that Sunday afternoon, 2 o'clock dinner, a Protestant meal. And I was chuckled at that. You guys having your Protestant meal this Sunday? I guess it's a Protestant thing. I don't know. It was an unusual holiday, Christmas, Thanksgiving, Easter, when extended family or and friends from church or people we had met in the community weren't seated around our dining room table. These days, we have come to regard our homes as literally as our castles. And most of them have drawbridges that are controlled with a push of a button. The, 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 the drawbridge comes down, the chariot goes in, you push the button, and the drawbridge closes again. We need to rediscover for our time the grace and the blessing of hospitality. It's not about having a Martha Stewart home. Some of the warmest hospitality I ever experienced, and this is true from my heart, was in an adobe brick home in a remote village in Mexico with tortillas being baked on the top of a 55-gallon drum, dirt floors, warm hospitality. Hebrews 13.2 puts a new twist on hospitality. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Actually, it's not a twist at all because that word translated hospitality is phylloxenia, the love of strangers. The love of strangers. We ought to make a, a special effort, I think, to be hospitable, especially to those who are new in our church. And I'm going to go way out on a limb right now. And you, I, I'm sure I'm going to get emails, texts, phone calls, letters, anonymous, some of them. Let me preface this with the scripture then that'll make it more palatable. The writer of Hebrews says, since the children, that's you and me, human beings, sinful human beings, share in flesh and blood, that is, we live in physical bodies. He himself likewise partook of the same. Jesus took on human flesh, so that through death he might deliver those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all of their lives. The fear of death is a kind of slavery. Jesus came to free us from the fear of death. There are people (laughs) 
This is touchy. There are people who come to our church who are living in the fear of death because they don't know Christ. And because they are living in the fear of death, they are living in the fear of COVID-19. And imagine the person who comes to our door. (laughs) I'm just going to say this. Imagine the person that comes to our door who is living in the fear of death, living in the fear, therefore, of the pandemic, and sees that very few of us are wearing masks. Will this be will this feel like a safe place for them? Let me let you in on a little secret. I hate masks. I hate them. I don't think they work. But I will strap cloth all over my face if it means that someone could come in and hear the message of life. What is 90 minutes of cloth on your face compared to eternity without Christ? This is not about, for me, about science. I get people send me stuff about the science of all this all the time. This is not about that. This is not about politics. This is about hospitality and Christian love. And I may not convince you of that. I'm asking you to consider it. I'm simply asking you to consider it. Could you surrender your rights for 90 minutes on a Sunday morning to create a place of safety for those who live all of their lives in the fear of death. There I said it. I'm going to move on. Devotion to the fellowship insists on inclusivity. Inclusivity. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being being saved. Notice that that it's the Lord doing the adding because it's the Lord doing the saving, it's the Lord doing the drawing, it's the Lord doing the convicting. The apostles are preaching the gospel and the Lord is adding to their number day by day those who are being saved. They're being added to the church. That's the norm for someone to come to faith in Christ. They're added to the church. They become part of that devoted fellowship. They're embraced, they're brought in. So if the Lord is doing the adding, we who are, uh, who are we rather to not do the part that he leaves to us, the welcoming, the befriending, the enfolding. There are online in some of the places you might expect the reviews of our church. And, uh, and I'm very happy to say that, uh, LifePoint Church is known in our community as one of the friendliest churches in town. I'm proud of all of you 
for that. Our hospitality team does a great job of helping our guests feel welcome. We all do a great job of greeting newcomers and befriending them. But I want to challenge us to go further. And here's a crazy idea. I want to ask you to consider doing one of two things on Sunday afternoons. First, consider being ready on a Sunday afternoon to invite a newcomer for lunch in your home. Maybe it's just tuna fish sandwiches and some potato chips and a pickle. Invite them. Or, and by the way, don't be weird. No. Just get to know them. Don't block the door. Let them leave when when they think it's time to leave. Or second, take them to lunch and pick up the tab. Not everyone expects or even wants to be invited to a private home. That's a lot these days for people to do. However, everyone has to eat, and everyone's hungry after church. And uh, Chick-fil-A may feel a lot less threatening than your address. Huh? Ah. Taco Bell, buy him a crunch wrap. Glad to know you're listening. Think about that. Those of you who are part of a life group, I, I just want to encourage you to be more aggressive about inviting, not aggressive, that's the wrong word, outgoing about inviting newcomers to your life group. Um, even if you think there's no more room. If there's no more room, you need to divide your group into two so that there is more room. If your group is too large to hospitably accommodate guests, it's too large. You who are part of the men's or women's ministries, I want you to make a beeline to to personally invite the guests you meet on Sunday morning to your next event. You who are part of kids' life or youth ministries, go out of your way to create opportunities to help kids who are new to our church make a relational connection where they feel welcomed and accepted and included. Be inclusive. Include those whom the Lord is adding to our church. Don't just stay in your usual circles Well, the next thing they devoted themselves to is the breaking of bread. And just very quickly, I mentioned two weeks ago that some think that this expression, the breaking of bread, points to the regular frequent observance of communion or the Lord's Supper. Others say it simply means that they ate together. And still others say that both are implied, and, and I tend to agree with those who say both. History tells us that, that in the early church, the Lord's Supper was observed in the context of a, a larger shared meal that the church would enjoy together frequently, which became known as the agape meal or the love feast. But they're breaking bread. They're observing communion. Why, why do we do that? We do that, first of all, in remembrance. In remembrance. The outward reminder of the sacrifice that purchased our salvation and of his soon coming for the church. Paul wrote First 1 Corinthians 11, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it, in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, 
you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So there's a, a remembering in, the, in our devotion to the word, uh, the, the breaking of the bread, our devotion to communion or the Lord's Supper or the Eucharist, whatever your tradition calls it, <clears throat> we're doing two things. We're, we're remembering, but we're also looking forward. We're preaching the gospel to ourselves and to each other as we eat the bread and drink the cup. We also do that in unity, in unity, because communion becomes the outward symbol of our fellowship in Christ. It's, it's, it's kind of a, an active logo, if you will. It t- keeps reminding us of who we are and whose we are. The cup of blessing that we bless, Paul wrote to the Corinthians, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? And by the way, that on both occasions there, the word participation is the word koinonia. It's fellowship. We fellowship together. I like the idea of having communion in the context of a larger meal, don't you? I mean, I really kind of hate these crummy little cups we use. But we keep doing it. Those are I'm calling those pandemic cups. <laughs> it's not a cup of virus. It's a, it's it's the, it's, it's the blood of Christ. I like the idea of doing it in the context of a meal. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was known for his staunch resistance to the Nazi regime. He he spent the final few years of his life imprisoned for his staunch resistance to uh, Hitler's euthanasia program, the genocidal persecution of the Jews. He was a Lutheran pastor. He decided, he was actually a pacifist, but he decided that he had to do something about what was going on in Germany, in his country. And uh, he actually became involved in the plot to assassinate Hitler. He was arrested in April 1943 by the Gestapo. He was imprisoned at Tegel Prison for a year and a half. He was later transferred to the Buchenwald concentration camp and finally to the Flossenburg concentration camp. And, and he was hanged on April 9, 1945 at Flossenburg as the Nazi regime was collapsing and the war was in its actually in its final days. Bonhoeffer wrote in his book, uh, classic book, Life Together, which I would commend to your reading. It is true, of course, that what is an unspeakable gift of God for the lonely individual is easily disregarded and trodden underfoot by those who have the gift every day. It is easily forgotten that the fellowship of Christian brethren is a gift of grace, a gift of the kingdom of God that any day may be taken from us that the time that still separates us from utter loneliness may be brief indeed. Therefore, let him who until now has had the privilege of living a common Christian life with other Christians praise God's grace from the bottom of his heart. Let him thank God on his knees and declare in his grace, nothing but grace, that we are allowed to live in community with Christian brethren. 
I pray for us here at LifePoint in a time when many churches are allowing Satan to divide them over racial issues, political differences, disagreements about masks and vaccinations and so many other things that we will not be dabblers in church. But we'll devote ourselves to the hard work of genuine fellowship with real people. That we will heed the Apostle Paul's urging to be diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit, the unity that the Spirit of God is working and wants to keep working in us in the bond of peace. Because when the watching world sees a diverse community of believers that is committed to loving each other tangibly and visibly, they will know, they will know that we are disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. I pray, Lord, that you would filter what I've shared so that what is from me will be burnt away. What comes directly from your Holy Spirit will be impressed upon us that we might be devoted, faithful, obedient disciples in our time and in this place. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.